0: Grace and peace friends. It's been a while since I've seen this room this lively. Think it's like the homecoming dance or something. Can everybody hear me? Can barely hear myself here. If you can hear me, why don't you shout "Donut"? Okay, it's a good portion of the room. I want to introduce you all to my friend Nikki. Nikki's coming up. Everybody say hi, Nikki. Before Nikki reads the text. Love to sing this over us. May I never lose a one.
1: If you'd like to join me in reading scripture, we will be in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 7. That's page 1097 in your Shed Bible. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain persons not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm.
2: Let us pray. Lord, you have gifted us your word. May we sit in your story and discover what you have for us. Lord, we center your word in our service and in our building so that we will chase after you and do it together. And so would you illuminate our minds and hearts today to pursue the ends you have for us, your church, your humble servants. And so to that end, God, we surrender. In Christ's name, amen. Well, friends, it's good to see you. If we haven't met, my name is Tim. And for the next seven weeks, you can also call me First Timothy. I figured I would make that joke right away. Before somebody, probably a male over the age of 65, says, you know. Anyway, so our first series, our series this fall is going to open with First Timothy, an ancient letter to a modern church. And I, I think it's got a lot to say. It'll be fun to dig in together. But I recognize as we dig into something new, like... Come on, we, we've got to bring our gear to excavate this particular text, because it's exciting, it's complex, it's nuanced, um, and I, we'll, we'll move pretty quickly. We have a lot to get through today, and I, at least as an inner circler, have donuts on my mind. So, First Timothy, we ready? Oh, if, I, if I was teaching school, that would not, are we ready? Yeah. All right, let's do this. First Timothy, it is a pastoral epistle. Uh, That means it is a letter. It's from a pastor to a pastor who pastors a church. It's from Paul who writes to Timothy who's pastoring a church in Ephesus. There's another book that's written to the church in Ephesus. It would be called Ephesians, right? So we have some context. We have some backstory uh, for this particular church. Now, this letter helps this church and this church think about how we make our way in the world together. How can a church in a large, thriving city figure out what it means uh, in front of the watching world to be a diverse and unique community following Jesus? This letter is helping Timothy consider how to navigate the leadership in a, a variety of competing viewpoints and keep the church focused on the worship and ways of Jesus Christ. So throughout this book, as with all of Scripture, the context really matters. What, who's writing it, why they're writing it, what's going on in the world. So we'll do a quick overview of kind of like a who, what, when, where kind of detective style and then we'll dig into the text. So first, when. This letter we think is written around 63 AD. So if you've been wanting for decades to relive the 60s, now is your chance. Uh, 63-ish is when we think this happens. Uh, The letter to the Ephesians was about 60 to 62, we think. So the church has been going for a little bit, and Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Where is very important. Ephesus, on the screen you'll see this nice arrow pointing to the town of Ephesus. It's a coastal town in Turkey. Really beautiful um, for those who've gone there. And it means it gets people and traffic from all over the Roman world. It's probably the second largest city in, in the Roman Empire, in that whole part of the world. So it's big, it is thriving, it has cultural inputs from everywhere and every thing. The backdrop of this particular town is very important. It is this. This is the Temple of Artemis. You may have heard of it as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It has 127 columns. It is four times the size of the Parthenon in Greece. This was huge. And on the hill, the Acropolis in Ephesus, this gave shape to their whole city. Not just physically, but philosophically. The worship of Artemis, or Artemis of the Ephesians, or in the text, Artemis of Ephesia, who uh, was the goddess of this particular temple. and they would say one of the most important goddesses in the world, certainly for them. It's, we don't want to miss this. This is not a side note to this whole book. Now Artemis is the goddess of the hunt, of animals, now, and is also the goddess of chastity, childbirth, and fertility. Yeah, I don't know how those all work together that way, but they do. For Artemis, it's important to keep in mind. Chastity, childbirth, fertility. Actually, we'll see probably in the coming weeks a statue that was found in that place of uh, Artemis covered in eggs as the, uh, as the symbol of fertility. And so this plays uh, a large role in this particular context. It's, it's as if this... Uh, temple casts a shadow physically and philosophically over the entire city. I know a little bit about what this is like. I grew up in Ann Arbor. And if somebody were to say, hey, where's the temple around here? It's there. It's <laughs> chill, yo. There's, there's a lot about unity and lack of division in this first Timothy book. Uh, if, somebody, if, if you're in Ann Arbor and you say, I'm just at the big house, It has a different meaning than if you're in, uh, I don't know, Jacksonville, and you're like a big house. They're like, what? Is that a restaurant? No. It's just there. It casts a shadow over the economy, over the traffic, where you go, when, and why. It's just there. And so I want us, if you can, to think of the Temple of Artemis as such. It's always at play in the background of this letter. In fact, there are two temples in which are at play in the background of this letter, one being the Temple of Artemis. Now, who? Who is this letter to? A young man named Timothy. Uh, You'll see them there. I was given this icon uh, at my confirmation with no explanation. So, I've had that sitting around for years. Now I'm kind of looking at it again. Timothy is this young pastor. We meet him as a boy. In fact, a young boy in Acts chapter 14. We see him as Paul is on his first journey and he's in the town of Lystra. And what's fascinating is this is when Timothy becomes to say, I want to follow you, Paul. I want to do what you're doing. But he meets Paul presumably as he, just as he has been stoned and thrown out, left for dead outside of the synagogue in Lystra. And somehow Timothy, with questionable intelligence, says, I want to do that. I just imagine there's like a high school guidance counselor in the background just being like, no, you don't. No, you don't. But somehow he, he knows what he's getting into. And over the years, Timothy is intentionally discipled by the Apostle Paul. The Paul. And what's really interesting is that Paul shouldn't have done this. Paul is a rabbi of great stature and follows the rabbi, Jesus Christ, and is making a disciple of this young boy, uh, Timothy. What's so strange about this is that Paul is a rabbi of rabbis. He is... Educated, blue check certified, documented—he has all the credentials. He studied under Gamliel, one of the most preeminent rabbis of the first century. He is—he knows his stuff. He's really Jewish. Timothy is not. Timothy has this privilege of having both a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And so Timothy doesn't fit. The synagogue with, with, uh, that Paul was driven out of, Timothy could not even enter as not a full Jew. Because in that territory, the leading thought leader, this rabbi, uh, is, is the one who says, we need to follow the exact letter of these particular laws. And so he cannot, as a non-pure-blooded Jew, enter the synagogue And then, so he carries this with him his whole life. As if even his birth narrative is something that's, something's wrong. Something is not right with him that he has nothing to do with. And then Paul, the, the teacher, the rabbi says, come and be a part of this kingdom. Come be a part of this vocation. I would imagine there's a conversation, something like this. Paul saying, come and be a part of the kingdom. Lead in this movement. And Timothy is like, are you crazy? Maybe you missed it, but I can't. They won't let me in. And underneath that practical, uh, practical pushback, it's probably there's something broken and not right with me. And so the first wrestling match we encounter in the backstory of this epistle is this Timothy's calling of being the one called in even though he has so many disqualifiers to keep him out. But I would also imagine that as Paul invites him into ministry, there's something that jumps in his heart, the possibility that exclusion and outsider-ness may not be the the defining theme of his life. In fact, Timothy is then chosen to lead the most geographically significant Christian church in the early church. So maybe in the face of Christ's invitation to life and healing, we too have reasons that we think are really good to push back, that we don't belong and that we want to count ourselves out. So I want you to bring those up a little bit. Let the Spirit do some work with those this morning because I think for many of us they are there and yet the invitation is also to us speaking of the synagogue in Lystra it's kind of weird though that some folks got the benefits of the gathered community and some didn't it's weird so who Paul is our other who today. He's writing near the end of his days, near the end of his life, to this church that he started, and he's writing to Timothy. He dies roughly four years later. He's accumulated some great wisdom and experience. His letters sound a little different than they did in the earlier days. And so Paul is writing to Timothy. And the last set of characters, the, the who um, that we'll be looking at throughout this book, well, some are the teachers, uh, teachers, preachers who are, are, are Um, talking about trivial or distracting uh, doctrine. We're going to encounter them in just a minute in chapter 1. Folks who are saying, this is what we need to pay a lot of attention to, or this really interesting thing, or this is how we need to use the ancient law as opposed to the way it's been fulfilled in Christ. So there's these false teachers, these leaders that are stirring up dissension. And then we also will encounter uh, a number of women leaders in this book. This is where the Temple of Artemis is very important. There's some wealthy women later in the book who tend to be showing off their material wealth in the gathered community, causing division. There are those who pretend to be poor in order to to get some handouts. And then there are those who, who seem to be leading out of a different motivation. So these are some of the characters we will encounter, that, that, they, that some of these women are leading out of a sense of syncretism. They're leading more like they were leaders in the church of Artemis, rather than the radically egalitarian church of Jesus Christ. So we need to be aware of that propensity in this church as well. And then what? Finally, the text and two temples. That we'll get into. So Nikki read for us uh, this first section, this first large chunk of 1 Timothy. These divisive teachers are kind of the primary subject of our text today and we're going to be bringing two questions to this. I think the question that is explicit in the text is what kind of church are you going to be? Timothy, this young pastor in this church that is in some some disarray, what kind of church are you going to be? And then kind of implicit in that is what does that require of us to be that kind of church? So let's journey with these a little bit. Uh, this opens up on uh, the next slide. This is the beginning of the letter to, to Timothy. Paul, he addresses himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then he says to Timothy, my loyal child in the faith, not just calling him a follower, but a child the one who had been outside is now fully inside, right? Grace, mercy, and peace. The mercy is kind of a nice addition. We don't get that in all the other letters. Might need a little bit extra mercy. Um, and then focus is the whole letter under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This thing flows from God the Father and Jesus Christ. And then we get into the letter a little bit. Uh, I urge you, So be the next slide, as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia. So Paul's on this journey to remain here in Ephesus, Timothy. And so that you may instruct certain people not not to teach any different doctrine or occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies genealogies that promote speculation rather than divine training. We get the problem. We get the tension in the text. There are leaders who are more occupied with all these other things than the lordship of Jesus Christ and what the church is purpose for in in Paul's mind. He says this, promotes speculations rather than divine training that is known by faith and here verse 5, but the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Then he goes on again, some have deviated from these and have turned to meaningless talk desiring to be teachers when they don't even know what they're talking about. There's no shortage of input. There's, the podcast app of the Ephesians is full. There's no shortage of people trying to tell you all sorts of interesting things. And yet Paul says the purpose of this body is distinct and different. And it points solely to Jesus Christ. The aim of such instruction is love is at the very center of this particular paragraph. So we know where he's going. Now we're also gonna take a look at this entire uh, book of 1 Timothy, so we got this next section here. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent but for the lawless and the disobedient. What Paul is doing here is he's poking at a particular thing that the rabbis in the area would do. They would say, well this, this law is all we need. Not the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ, but this particular Torah is all we need. And so then he goes on to employ um, a writing technique of the first century where he just kind of lists a lot of things. You see a lot of these lists turning up in especially the Pauline letters. He so said, that's what the law is for, to get people back on track. To get kind of a baseline thing, but it's not used for developing a full congregation in the way you're using it. He's pushing back against the false teachers. So we go on here, in this particular text, not for the lawless and the disobedient, but for the godless and the sinful, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their father and mother, for the murderers, the fornicators, the sodomites, the slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whoever else is contrary to the sound teaching and is not conform to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to pause a moment. The context matters. We are called to be a people who dig deeply into the word of God. So we don't want to skip over anything here. What you'll notice is that we're talking about the law, and then there's a particular word I want to draw your attention to. And this uh, NRSV translation, it's sodomites in other places and other texts. It may have something that points to homosexuals. And so I want to uh, look and pause at this particular word. It is a Greek word, uh, arsenokotoi. It is used two places in the scriptures here and then in 1 Corinthians as well. It is a unique word, probably a melding together of two other Greek words that Paul is employing here in a unique way and it's not found in anywhere else really in the ancient literature, in in kind of the Koine Greek writing world. Right, just here and then one time in 1 Corinthians. And it's been translated by many people many different ways over the last couple centuries. In the last 70 years alone, it's had eight different major translations that take you in various different places. And so, I want us to pause and say this puts a challenge forward to us to think that we 're not avoiding this particular taste, I want text, but I want to take it for what it is that, that Paul is pointing in this section of scripture back to jesus christ he 's talking about the law he 's not laying down something for all time, but we also want to pay close attention to what 's happening and I, I want to encourage us that on one word used twice is not enough to build a robust, nuanced theology of sex and gender. But it is something to pay attention to. I don't think here Paul is trying to lay down something for all of time, but instead saying, look deeper at what really matters around you, and we'll figure this out as we continue to go along. And we need to pause as a community and say that there are, both in our midst and in the Christian community, a lot of really sincere, well-intentioned Christian scholars and theologians and pastors who have different opinions on texts like this and similar ones and yet we're trying to work this thing out following the message of Jesus as Paul encourages us, together. And so while I would not, I would not say you should in, uh, build a whole theology on one word twice used rarely in ancient Greek, there are places which we can dig in together. and But this text is pointing us to a place where we work that out in our community. In fact, we have differing viewpoints in this room. And I would say after looking at the context of the Ephesian church, there are differing viewpoints on what Paul may mean here and elsewhere in the Ephesian church. And knowing so, Paul says that the aim of this letter of your church is love under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we journey together in this kind of mixed bag of working out what it means to be the church in bodies, in the world together, following Jesus. And we look at what the text is actually saying. In the opening paragraphs of this letter, let's go back to the next slide. Paul is highlighting that there's different doctrine. There's, there's possibly in these endless genealogies a difference between maybe the Lucan and the Mar, uh, sorry, Matthew genealogies of Jesus. Trying to parse these little details out and what Paul is saying behind it is actually, wait a minute, there's something bigger happening. There's something more important than kind of going here, there, and everywhere and it's the fact that everybody is, belongs here. Remember when I said there was two temples at play in the background of this story. One, the temple of Artemis. And that plays a huge role. Second is the temple. The temple in Jerusalem and the subsequent synagogues that were modeled after it. You see, in the back of the mind of the Ephesian church is something larger than these little definition lists of behavior. And that's this. It comes to us from Ephesians 2 and it points us to the temple. Let's go a couple more slides there, Scott. Here we go. This is the temple in Jerusalem. Now, uh, in this temple, there is a wall A low wall um, that's about yay high And it differentiates between the court of the Gentiles and the Jews Let's go two more slides Uh, Next one The green is where the Gentiles A lot of the church in Ephesus could be And the red is this dividing wall between where the Gentiles could be and where the Jews could go Those who could all worship together, but those on the inner circle had special privileges and were close enough to God. And this sign, we'll go to the next slide, uh, this has been found, it says, Jews only on the other side. Enter with, on pain of death if you're not a true Jew. Now, who's the pastor in Ephesus? Timothy. Is Timothy a true Jew? No. No. And so what Paul is doing in in the letter to the Ephesians, before Timothy even arrives, is this. This is uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself, he's talking about how to make peace within a divided congregation. For he himself, Jesus Christ is our peace, the one who made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So rewind to that temple slide. You see... The thing that kept people apart, the thing that kept Timothy out of ministry, the thing that was threatening to divide the Ephesian church, there's one group of people who are privileged and in, there's another group who are out or kind of on the margins. Paul is saying in the backdrop of this letter that that is not the case in the church of Jesus Christ. That Christ Himself is the peace between all groups and all differences and has broken down the dividing wall and the barrier so that all may come in and all may have access and all can be a part of this Jesus movement. And so He's doing this in a city that has a propensity to division. There's so many ways you could have chopped up the Ephesian church. But he's saying, no, that you would be one. And he's putting a pastor there who's not really all that qualified by worldly standards. He's kind of a humble dude who doesn't have the right education or the right pedigree. And he's kind of timid, we get this sense. And yet, Paul is saying, you're the one. You are the one to lead the church in this important city. Because behind that is the fact that Christ has done the work. And that you do not need to live divided. And that all people, regardless of their narrative or their behavior, have access to Jesus Christ. And that is the story that's being told in Ephesus and through 1 Timothy. So yes, everybody gets donuts and cider. Even the back rows. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They're really good, had like four of them on Tuesday. (laughs) So, there is no more first class, second class, in, out, outsider. There is a new humanity that Christ is putting together to forge new territory in the world. So, remember the two questions as we look forward into this letter of 1 Timothy. What kind of church are you gonna be? And what does that require of you? The first question is answered implicitly in the letter. You are gonna be a church that is unified, not uniform, but you're gonna journey together where differences and questions and ambiguities exist and be a people who can bring those questions to the text read in the presence of one another and say, how is there a more excellent way? As we find in 1 Corinthians 13. The way of love for us together. And then what does that require of us as people who are going to be stepping into this journey to be a part of this particular church? I think it requires probably three questions of us. The first one, what do we need to let go of in light of what God is doing in the church? What does it mean to be a part of something greater than ourselves? Probably we need to let go of the definition of who's worthy to be in and who's out. That's kind of in the backdrop of this whole letter, by who it's to, who it's for. We need to kind of let go of our definitions of who's in and who's out. I think implicit in the letter too is we, need, we have, there's an invitation for us to let go of the shame and exclusion and inner narratives that we would use to discount ourselves from fully being a part of the body of Christ. I think we need to let go of also The need to be right as it is greater than all other Christian pursuits. But instead, what's at the crux of the middle of this letter, or this section is Paul is saying, love, good conscience, pure heart, and sincere faith. To go after those things, pursuing unity with Jesus. And then there's some things we need to just hold loosely as we figure out life together, what it means to be the church together. Some of those are preferences how we think things should be let's hold those loosely together and then let be gracious with one another I think there's also a chance that we have to hold loosely kind of uh, our, our own opinions not that we shouldn't have convictions but as we work together to be a Jesus people distinct from the world around us as that in Ephesus let's be humble with one another uh, I heard some, some research on an interview that was done this morning and they were talking about how, you know, our propensity now is to say, I want to be a part of a community that has the black and white answers right away. And they need to check 10 out of 10 boxes and everything we say would be in total agreement for me to be a part of them. I don't know how many people that would leave me in community with. One. Myself. So let's, let's do something different together and see where God takes us. And so then what do we need to hold tightly to to endure this journey and grow together? We get a a little sniff of this in Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm that God can be trusted to keep God's promise, that we have reminders of God's promise every week that we can bet our lives on. That we're holding tight to what God has told us. We're holding tight to Jesus. To Christ's body, one another. And Paul ends this particular section of scripture by pointing us in the direction we should go. We'll talk about this text a little bit more next week, but he says this that it is, to the one, now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. The only one who can bring us from outsider to insider is the one we focus our attention and affection towards. The only one who can heal us of the shame and outcastness that has kept us at bay is the one who invites us in, not just on the periphery, but is in charge of the entire world. That there is no dividing wall in this community. It's a community that is beloved under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ alone. So while that doesn't answer all pressing questions, and neither does the rest of the book of 1 Timothy, it says, I want want to be a part of that church, to figure that out together with humility and healing, looking towards Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So that's the invitation, friends. So let us take it and let us be reminded together. And we do so at this table, where Jesus invites us and calls us to say, I will be broken for you to be made whole, to break down the dividing wall. And so it starts with the promise that we can hold tight to. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. And so we pray, Lord of all creation, how good and right and joyful thing it is that at all times and in all spaces, we can give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And therefore, we praise you We join our voices with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, forever singing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So God, would you send your spirit on these elements, just just has, has this cup has been taken from grapes from many different vines and made one, and this bread has been taken from many different fields and made into one loaf that we break together, would you do that work in us, and would this be unto us the communion of the body of Christ? And, O oh Lord, would you do a work in us that we would fulfill the longing and promise of your Son that we would be one? And would you, in that, teach us a more excellent way? And that is what Jesus was doing as he sat with his disciples on the night he was betrayed, teaching them a more excellent way. He sat down, he took the bread, and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And at the end of the meal, he takes the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant, the new promise in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so we do. We have a chance as one body to gather around these tables to take and eat and be reminded and sustained of God's work to break down the barriers. We have a chance to pray as well. If some of those narratives are coming up around, I, I, I'm actually not fully in. There's lots of reasons why I could be out. We have Brian in the back, our care pastor. would love to pray with you. You can join your prayers in the prayer wall. Know that our staff will be praying for you throughout the week. And come and let this meal be a gift for you as we together rehearse the story that the church is ever rehearsing. And it is this. We say it together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So friends, come and be blessed and receive who you are, the body of Christ.